Good morning, church family. It's uh, great to be with you again. Um, Phil, uh, I think you might appreciate this maybe, being a, a physician, but my wife always used to say to me, and still does, um, that she thinks I could have been a doctor. Because when our kids get injured, I run towards them, she runs away. And I don't mind the blood and, and that sort of thing. I'm able to assist them. In fact, recently, I helped my daughter with a temporary filling. Uh, I was able to do that, and, and my wife didn't want to have any part of it. But I knew I couldn't be a doctor because I don't think I have the intellect, or I wasn't prepared to study for 100 years or whatever it is that you have to study uh, to be a doctor. But I've realized recently that there's another reason why I can't be a doctor, and that is that I just can't wear a face mask all day let alone see through my glasses um, once it's all fogged up. You know, I feel like I'm in a charismatic worship service with all the smoke. And so I, I don't know how you do it, but, but I respect you for it. So I, I'm thankful the Lord didn't make me a doctor. Uh, I knew also that there's a purpose for everything under the sun. Um, I didn't know that the reason the Lord caused my hair to fall out was so that Brandon could strap this mic to the side of my head <laughs> so that I don't mess with it as much as I did last time. So I, I appreciate that and hopefully uh, everything will go according to plan. Right, so you've started already with this summer series on the Word of God. You've already discussed the canonicity of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, I'll remind you of three points that, that Brandon presented to you and, and, and exhorted you to remember considering the canon. Number one, the Holy Spirit administered the formation of Scripture. It was God who determined what is in the Bible. He made this wonderful comment, the canon bears God's fingerprints. Secondly, Jesus himself affirms the Old Testament scriptures. Thirdly, Jesus authorized the New Testament canon, and he mentioned those scriptures, John 14, 26, John 16, 12, and then also reminded us of Ephesians 2, 19, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. He asked us this question, how can we justify using the Scriptures to prove the Scriptures? Is this not circular logic? He then answered, not if it is God himself who has established truth and knowledge, and nothing is knowable without God making it knowable. He is the source of knowledge, and therefore going to his word cannot be circular logic. John 17 verse 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we know it's God's word because it's God breathed. Then last week, uh, Brandon expounded the topic of the inspiration of Scripture. Three arguments why you as believers must trust the Bible. And this was taken from 2 Peter 1 verse 16 to 21 they were not making up fables they were made our witnesses 
and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so with that as a foundation and a necessary foundation at that, it falls to me this week to talk to you about inerrancy. And so before we do that, let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we thank You for the privilege that we have of gathering together as Your people. Those gathered in Your name to hear Your truth. We pray that You would help us to speak your oracles, that we would declare the great glories of the sum of your character, for we know that without faith it's impossible to please you, and whoever draws near to you must believe that you exist and that you're the rewarder of those that seek you. And so we seek to know you more this morning. As we open up your word, we pray that you will speak to us Convict us, encourage us, and strengthen us for every good work. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I would like to borrow Abner Chu's terminology um, for a moment, although unfortunately I don't share his intellect or his talent to preach. I can steal his terminology. He says, uh, in one sermon that he did, which would be similar to this one, that it's not a sermon. It's not expositional in, the, in that regard because it's topical. Uh, it's also not quite a lecture, but, but it's a bit of both. So we're going to call it a learnman this morning. We'll do a bit of both. We now approach that subject of the inerrancy of Scripture. And you could ask the, the, the question, is this an important subject? Do we need to defend this? The author of the book, Reforming Fundamentalism, informs us that 85% of the students of one of America's largest evangelical seminaries stated that they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. In the late 80s, a poll of 10,000 USA clergymen, of whom 74% replied, clearly reveals the effects of this significant change of belief through the passage of time. When asked if they believed that the Scriptures are the inspired and inerrant Word of God in faith, history, and secular matters, 95% of Episcopalians said no. 87% of Methodists said no. 82% of Presbyterians said no. 77% of American Lutherans said no. 67% of American Baptists said no. This sad commentary speaks for itself. And I wonder, even if this morning you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, would you be able to defend that position if you were pressed upon? And so this morning... What I hope we can do is, by answering two questions, you would have a better response and a more biblical response to defending the inerrancy of Scripture. So firstly, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is without error, that is, inerrant? 
No doubt you've heard critics of the Bible claiming that the Bible is full of errors and can't be trusted. Maybe as a new Christian even, you've had doubts about the trustworthiness of the Bible. As Brandon and I were talking this morning, some doubts are not only natural, but they're actually good in a way. We should always test what people tell us about the way of salvation. Given all the false religions in the world, knowing that we can trust our Bible is no small matter. To understand the trustworthiness of Scripture, we first need to define inerrancy. Simply put, what we mean by inerrancy is that it is free from error. It is completely truthful. Paul Feinberg has a good working definition. Listen to how he puts it. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. Let me repeat that. Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts have become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. Now, Christians often will add that the Bible is also infallible. And they may use that term interchangeably with the term inerrant. Now, the Bible is both infallible and inerrant. But it's helpful to understand the difference between these two terms. The difference between infallible and inerrant is that one is hypothetical while one is actual. As R.C. Sproul points out, infallible is a broader term than inerrant, and it speaks to the ability or potential of something. So listen carefully to this. If something is infallible, it is unable to make a mistake or to err. If something is infallible, it is unable to make a mistake or to err. If something is inerrant, it does not contain error. The distinction is something uh, that can be fallible, for example. In other words, it's able to err, but still be inerrant, could still be correct. Here's an example. We know that humans err, but we are also capable of being inerrant. We can write a book, for example, that is completely factual or true. We can make true statements, even if we don't do that all the time. But this is what I want you to know. If something's infallible, it is never able to err. So humans are not infallible, but they can at times be inerrant. Now listen to this. If something is infallible, it must by definition be inerrant because it's not able to be wrong. And since all Scripture is God-breathed, and since God is infallible, perfect, and true, then by necessity the Scriptures are both infallible 
and inerrant. And we hold this position because the scripture is God-breathed. Turn with me then to the most famous verse in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And we'll read verse 17 as well. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'm reading from the ESV. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This Greek word here is theopneustos, which means God breathed, more literally as coming directly out of God. And so if one believes that God is perfect and infallible, and he must be or he's not God, then by logical extension, all scripture must also be infallible and thus inerrant. One could say in one sense, there's nothing more that needs to be said about scripture once we know that all of it is breathed out by God. All scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. This is Old Testament and New Testament. Turn over to Second Peter 3, verse 15 and verse 16, and listen to uh, what Peter writes about Paul's writings. Second Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. The second part of Verse 15, he says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Paul says to the church at Corinth, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then flip the other way again to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. You'll be familiar with this passage. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul's direct claim for Scripture is that it's inspired by God. It is the product of God's own work through human authors by the means of His Spirit, as Brandon expounded last week. Since these written words are the words of the God of truth, they must then be without error. At this point, you've just heard me 
read from the ESV, we must say that when we say the Bible is infallible and inerrant, this always refers only to the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek writings created by the original authors. So Moses, David, Paul, Peter, etc. And while we don't possess the original works today, we do possess thousands of carefully made copies called manuscripts. These ancient copies may contain minor errors resulting from a copyist's mistake. But because we possess a comprehensive collection of ancient manuscripts, in fact tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts have been preserved, we can compare them to one another to identify the copyist's errors. These ancient manuscripts are remarkably consistent with each other, and they demonstrate the trustworthiness of that copy process. For example, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s, these first century copies were compared to other manuscripts and found to be 99.9% accurate. Now since most people can't read Hebrew and Greek, the original manuscripts must be translated into modern languages like English. And so by definition, a translation of scripture is not considered inerrant since the translation process itself must alter the original words. There are many English translations, and uh, you know, you'll know all of them. Each of these translations renders the text slightly differently. And due to the differences in vocabulary and syntax between human language, translations can fail to convey the original meaning perfectly. And while some translations are deemed more faithful than others, in general, all scholarly translations communicate the, meeting, the meaning of Scripture honestly and accurately. It's important to note that no copyist errors nor translation errors among these translations have ever altered essential doctrines of our faith. And so we may ask why God did not preserve the original manuscripts. After all, if He had the power to inspire them in the first place, then certainly he has the power to preserve them. For example, God went so far as to preserve the clothing of the Jews, wandering in the desert for 40 years, in Deuteronomy 8.4. So why did God permit the original copies of his word to disappear? James Montgomery Boyce offers a possible answer. He says, Knowing human nature, it is reasonable to suppose that if we had supernaturally preserved copies of the Bible manuscripts, or perhaps even the originals themselves, men and women would tend to worship them rather than the God who gave them. We remember the bronze serpent God gave in Moses' time. Later, 2 Kings 18.4 tells us that they worshipped the snake. How much likelier is it that people would end up worshipping the manuscripts of the Bible rather than the Lord himself? And so with this relatively long introduction as a background, we're going to first consider six practical aspects of what it means when we say that we believe in scriptural inerrancy. Six practical aspects of what we mean by scriptural inerrancy. Firstly, inerrancy means historical accuracy. Inerrancy means historical accuracy. All historical accounts in Scripture are accurate, including dates, 
locations, the names of kings, when they ruled, the age of the earth, places that have existed in the past, all of these are recorded accurately in Scripture. Recalling the definition of inerrancy earlier, we often say that when all of the facts have become known, we will see that the Bible was correct. And this statement is especially true when speaking about our understanding of historical people and events. For example, the Bible describes certain people and places for which we have no independent or extra-biblical record, leading some to criticize the Bible as untrustworthy. Nevertheless, later an archaeological exploration or historical discovery will yield evidence that these people or places did in fact exist just as the Bible reported. Who has heard of the Behistun rock inscriptions? Have you heard of it? Must admit, first time in preparing for this. This was Darius's account inscri inscribed of his victory over the great throne of, Sir, of Cyrus. These findings demonstrate that the Bible is historically accurate. They are in exact accord with what was said. Secondly, inerrancy exists even when Old Testament texts are not recited verbatim in the New Testament. Inerrancy exists even when the Old Testament texts are not recited verbatim in the New Testament. The New Testament often quotes from the Old Testament passages differently than how those passages read in the Old Testament. These differences reflect the differences between the ancient translation of Scripture. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, while the New Testament was written in Greek. When a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, the writer translates the Hebrew Old Text Testament into Greek, which doesn't have a perfect word-for-word -word meaning. Then our English Bible must translate the Greek text into English. Therefore, the New Testament quote has moved from Hebrew to Greek and then to English, while the Old Testament text moved directly from Hebrew to English. The variances introduced by this extra step of translation can lead to slightly different wording in the New Testament when compared to the original Old Testament quote. Nevertheless, the principle of inerrancy means that even this difference in wording is inspired by the Spirit and thus inerrant. The two renditions of the Old Testament quote will stand together equally to complement and not contradict each other in conveying God's intended meaning. Thirdly, inerrancy includes the use of figures of speech and different genres. Just as we use figurative language in our writing to convey meaning, God does the same in Scripture. The Lord uses many forms of this in Scripture, including generalities, hyperboles, metaphors, symbolism, for example, the Bible describes God as possessing wings, or a heart, or arms, the strong arm of the Lord. But Scripture also says that God is all spirit and not a man. Therefore, we understand such descriptions to be a type of euphemism 
And I have to run up to this word called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, in case you wanted to write that down. Figurative language is often better at conveying a thought, more so than literal language. So the scripture's reliance on figurative language isn't just cause to reject inerrancy. When we interpret the meaning of those scriptures, figures, and symbols accurately, the result will always be inerrant. Fourth, the Bible is inerrant even when it does not use the modern language of science. Clearly, many words and concepts that we have today did not exist when Scripture was originally written, especially words used in modern science. Therefore, we must allow some license to the author of Scripture when they use an inexact language to describe a process we understand more precisely today. An example of this would be that Scripture often speaks of the rising and the setting of the sun, though we know that the sun doesn't truly rise or set. Scientifically speaking, the earth turns on its axis, producing the appearance of a rising or the setting of the sun. Discrepancies of this type are not examples of error, no more than when we use similar figurative speeches today. The Lord understands how His creation works, since He is the author of science, yet He communicates spiritual truth from the perspectives that men can understand, which may require using scientifically inexact language from time to time. Despite the use of such inexact language, the underlying message remains inerrant. Number five, inerrancy does not guarantee the exhaustive comprehensiveness of any single account or combined accounts. Inerrancy does not guarantee the exhaustive comprehensiveness of any single account or combined accounts. Bible critics will point to the differences in the details of the gospel accounts as proof that the Bible isn't trustworthy. An example of this, Matthew says one angel met the woman who came to Jesus' grave after he had risen, while Luke reports that there were two angels. Is one account wrong? No. Each writer highlighted different details in their account. So though Matthew only mentions one angel, this doesn't mean that Matthew is contradicting Luke's account or vice versa. Instead, each gospel account complements the others by recording the same event from different perspectives. In this case, Matthew, Matthew chose to mention only one angel, while Luke explained that there were two present. By combining these two accounts along with the gospels of Mark and John, we gain a full understanding of the event that took place. In this case, we understand that there were two angels at the tomb, though Matthew chose to mention only one. Once again, such differences are inspired by the Spirit in actual fact to authenticate the author's testimony. Why do I say this? Well, ironically, if all four gospel accounts were identical in every detail, that kind of unnatural consistency would only serve to argue against the trustworthiness of those accounts. Then, number six, inerrancy does not demand the infallibility of non-inspired sources used by biblical writers. 
Inerrancy does not demand the infallibility of non-inspired sources used by biblical writers. At times, the Bible incorporates non-biblical material. That may sound odd, but the example of this would be Acts 17, where Paul quotes the Greek philosophers. And Jude seems to quote Enoch, who he identifies as the seventh from Adam. When these non-inspired works are quoted in Scripture, the quote itself becomes inerrant. However, the work from which it originated is not considered inerrant in total. As we know, every human work may contain truth to some degree, but it's only Scripture which is inerrant and without error. So when the authors of Scripture quote from non-biblical sources, they even do that under inspiration. And therefore the quoted material is without error, not where it originated from. So those briefly are the six practical aspects of what we mean when we say that the Bible is without error. Now we will look at six reasons why we should absolutely believe in biblical inerrancy. Six reasons why we should absolutely believe in biblical inerrancy. The first one and the most important one is that the Bible itself claims to be perfect. The Bible itself claims to be perfect. Psalm 12 verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. These claims of purity and perfection are absolute statements. Note that it doesn't say God's word is mostly pure or scripture is nearly perfect. The Bible argues for complete perfection, leaving no room for partial perfection theories. Number two, the Bible stands or falls as a whole. The Bible stands or falls as a whole. If a major newspaper were, were routinely discovered to contain errors, it would quickly be discredited. It would make no difference to say, oh, don't worry, all the errors are confined to page 3. For a paper to be reliable in any of its parts, it must be factual throughout. In the same way, if the Bible is inaccurate when it speaks of geology, why should its theology be trusted? It is either a trustworthy document or it is not. Thirdly, the Bible is a reflection of its author. All books are. The Bible was written by God himself as he worked through human authors in what Brandon expounded last week called inspiration. All scripture we've seen, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, is God-breathed, coming directly out of God. And this is what 2 Peter and Jeremiah 1 verse 2 talks about too. We believe 
that the God who created the universe is in fact capable of writing a book. And the God who is perfect is capable of writing a perfect book. The issue is not simply does the Bible have a mistake, but can God make a mistake? If the Bible contains factual errors, then God is not omniscient and is capable of making errors himself. If the Bible contains any misinformation, then God is not truthful, but instead a liar. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. In other words, this is how serious it is. If biblical inerrancy is not true, then God simply is not God. Number four, the fourth reason why we should absolutely believe in inerrancy is that the Bible judges us and not vice versa. You're familiar with Hebrews 4 verse 12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, to uh, pierce between the soul and the spirit, able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Notice the relationship between the heart and the word. The word examines. The heart is being examined. To discount parts of the word for any reason is to reverse this process. When we become the examiners, then the word must submit to our superior discernment and our superior judgment or our superior insight. And yet it is God who says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Romans 9.20 Then number five, the Bible's message must be taken as a whole. It is not a mixture of doctrine that we are free to select from. Many people love the verses that say God loves them. But they dislike the verses that say that God will judge sinners. We cannot simply pick and choose what we like about the Bible and then throw the rest away. If the Bible is wrong about hell, for example, then who's to say that it is right about heaven? Or about anything else for that matter? If the Bible cannot give us details that are correct about creation, then maybe the details about salvation cannot be trusted either. If the story of Jonah is a myth, then perhaps so is the story of Jesus. On the contrary, God has said what he has said, and the Bible presents us a full picture of who God is. Listen to this Psalm 119 verse 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal and it stands firm in the heavens. Lastly, the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. If it is not reliable, then on what do we base our beliefs? Jesus asks us for our trust, and that includes trust in what he says in his word. John Chapter 6 and verse 67 and 69 is a beautiful passage. Jesus had just witnessed the departure of many who claimed to follow him. In fact, Scripture calls them disciples. 
Then he turns to the 12 apostles and he asks, do you want to leave too? At this, Peter speaks for the rest of us when he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. May we have the same trust in the Lord and in his words of life. Now there's something else that I have to admit to, and that is that what we've presented here should not be taken as the rejection of true scholarship. Biblical inerrancy doesn't mean that we stop using our minds or we accept what the Bible says blindly. We are commanded to study the Word, 2 Timothy 2.15. And those who search it out are commended in Acts 17.11. The Bereans who studied these things daily to see if they were so. Think about that. They were listening to the apostles preach. And yet they were looking at the scriptures daily to make sure that what they heard was right. Also, we recognize that there are difficult passages in the Bible, as well as sincere disagreements over interpretation. Our goal, however, is to approach scripture reverently and prayerfully. And when we find something we don't understand, we pray harder and we study more. And if the answer still eludes us, we humbly acknowledge our own limitations in the face of the perfect Word of God. Some say, well, I don't believe that all of the Bible is inerrant, but I believe most of it is inerrant. Is such a view consistent with salvation? That is, can a believer hold to the view that the Bible isn't inerrant? Certainly. Holding to the inerrancy of the Bible is not necessary for being a Christian. Christians are those we know who believe in the resurrected Christ as their Savior. Nothing more than faith in Jesus Christ is required to be saved. But Christians will be drawn by the Spirit to a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, and a greater trust in the Scriptures. And therefore, a confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture should be the testimony of every believer as they grow in Christ. As we've already seen, Scripture itself testifies that it is God-breathed. And this means it's logically impossible for a mature, a mature Christian to hold to a partially inerrant position considering Scripture. Scripture is either inspired or it's not. And if it is inspired, then it testifies to itself that it is all from God. Paul's letters or, or Moses' writings were not merely their personal opinions. They were God's thoughts, or else they were nothing. Over the course of history of the church, every generation has struggled against those who would want to lower the bar of the trustworthiness of Scripture. And whenever the church has de departed from the, a view of Scripture as literal and inerrant, the church has slid into apostasy or worse. Today, we run the danger again in the church if we don't have a high view of Scripture that we will become apostate, abandoning this high view of Scripture. And always in its place, men will substitute their thoughts and their desires, which always leads to destruction. 
Denying inerrancy, in fact, is rejecting the God who authored Scripture, which in turn questions God's character, God's purposes, and His sovereign power. How can we trust a God for salvation who cannot even preserve the integrity of His Word? Or worse, who deceives us into thinking Scripture is inerrant when it isn't? In short, this is how boldly we would proclaim it. If Scripture isn't 100% inerrant, then it must be 100% meaningless. As a footnote, it's worth noting that the church throughout history has held to the principle of inerrancy. Challenging the inerrancy of Scripture is a relatively new tactic of the enemy. But Peter warned us that this day would come. 1 Peter 3 verse 15, he says, We must be ready to make an account and give it offense for everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. Our defense of the truth can never simply be, well, we had this inner conviction or uh, a feeling in my bosom or uh, this experience led me to Christ. No, our faith is based on a certain knowledge of God as revealed by Him in His Scriptures, and therefore our defense of the truth must be based on a confidence in those Scriptures. In short, the Bible declares that it is the revealed Word of God given to mankind so that we may know that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, and this we can be assured of. Thanks be to God, He has provided for us in His Word which is as infallible and as inerrant as its author is. The doctrine of biblical inerrancy is extremely important because truth matters. This issue reflects on the character of God and is foundational to our understanding of everything else that the Bible teaches. In closing, Vodi Bachum has a brilliant sermon called Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. He says the most important question for us to answer is why we choose to believe what the Bible says. He asks and pleads, please don't say the following. Firstly, I believe the Bible because that is the way I was raised. What about the others whose parents told them something different? Secondly, he says, please don't say I believe the Bible because I tried it and it worked for me, it changed my life. What's wrong with that logic? Well, the same thing here. What about those who have experienced something different? What about the Muslims or the Mormons or anyone else who, for whom false religion has worked? Are they right? Is that how we determine truth? Vodi goes on to prove, and he says the following, that I believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written during the time of eyewitnesses by other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment with specific prophecies, and they claim their writings to be divine rather than human in origin. That's why we believe the Bible. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I can highly recommend it. And so let's pray. Father, thank you 
once again for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray you do indeed sanctify us by your word. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so I pray that you will cause us to know your truth, that we will know it more clearly. For we know that everything that we need for life and godliness comes through that true knowledge of your Son who has called us by his own glory and excellence. We thank you that although the grass withers and the flower fades, that your word will endure forever. Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.